I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll follow up on bipartisan China legislation in Congress and what it could mean for U.S. businesses and investors. Plus, we'll break down the new fight between Harley-Davidson and the EU over tariffs. And The Trade Guys discuss new appointments and nominees at the office of the U.S. Trade Representative. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Trade guys, it looks like pushing back against China's rise as a strategic competitor might be the one issue that could draw bipartisan support. There's several bills in committee in Congress right now that could actually achieve bipartisan support. Scott, do you want to break this down for us? Well, look, uh, the starting point is public opinion, which over the past two years, and particularly during the pandemic year of 2020, the public opinion shifted decidedly and and strongly unfavorably toward China. I mean, China as a menace is a prevailing opinion among the broad swath of the American people because elected officials in general and Congress in specific are responsive to public opinion. This makes it easier for them to act. And certainly there's bipartisan support for action of some sort. And like you said, pre-pandemic, it was a view held by a majority of both Republicans and Democrats yes. that China was more than a competitor, it was a, a foe of some sort. It was an unfair trader and uh, potentially harmful to American interests, in, in, generally speaking. Only got worse uh, during 2020. So that's the starting point. Yeah. And Congress acted in a bipartisan way with regard to the semiconductor industry as part of the National Defense Authorization at the end of the last Congress. So it just trailed over into the beginning of, tw- of uh, January 2021 where they they authorized the provision called the CHIPS, which is this, it's essentially, it's a fund that matches state and local incentives for the development of and facilities that produce uh, integrated circuit chips. So that, that part was was done early. It was authorized, but there's there no funding to, uh, to it yet. So the first easy step would be to fund that. But there, there are markups going on in several uh, committees on both sides of the, the hill with regard to uh, what to do next. And a lot of it is, uh, I think, appropriately focused on improving American competitiveness. On, uh, As Bill says, you can, you can trip them or we can run faster. And a lot of it is about running faster, which I think is a good thing. Bill? This is the offense part of our strategy, you know, trying to get our own uh, industry and innovation capability in shape. And I think Biden was exactly right about this, that it's it's overdue and something we need, not just because of China, but because, you know, we risk falling behind having been really the world's innovation leader for a long time. I don't think we've lost that position, but others are catching up. And if you don't want to get caught up, you've got to run faster. And Andrew, as you noted, there's bipartisan support for this. There's a couple of challenges. I mean, the biggest thing they really need to do is exactly what Scott said, which is actually vote the money. You know, all these things we're talking about are authorizations, uh, which are great because they say this is what we're going to do. But at the end of the day, the appropriators actually have to come up with cash. And that's moving along as well, but I think on a slightly slower track. And that will be the thing that's, that's decisive. I mean, the CHIPS Act passed last December. 
and it's not funded yet. So it, it needs to be, you know, incorporated into this year's appropriation cycle. The other challenge is going to be sorting out all these bills because there's there's multiples of them. Yeah, there's the Van Hollen and Roy Blunt have. That's the new one. That's the newest one. It's called National Strategy to Ensure American Leadership Act. And its, uh, and its goal is to identify the 10 most pressing technology challenges the nation faces. There's also the Endless Frontiers Act, which really is focused on semiconductors and uh, substantially more support for semiconductors. And then there's another one that I forget the name of that's in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Is this the Strategic Initiatives Act? Yes, thank you. Yeah. They're all a little bit different, but in some respects, they're all kind of the same. And at some point, somebody's going to have to sort out the differences. It makes no sense to pass, you know, three bills that are, you know, 35% overlapping. There needs to be some sort of kind of reconciliation process. You know, they need to decide which things they're going to do. And eventually there will probably be, you know, one new thing that emerges from all three of these. But I mean, in a way, that's what the committee process is for. And as an institutionalist, as somebody who worked up there, this is a good sign. You know, the Congress is working. Committees are doing their job. These are not bills that were drafted, you know, by three leadership staff that are coming to the floor 48 hours later. You know, these are bills that are having hearings and the committees are working on and that are bipartisan. This is the way things are supposed to work. It's a good sign. I actually misspoke. It's the Strategic Competition Act. And it's uh, for those of you out there keeping score, it's S-1169. Now, something else I wanted to point out, Scott, I have seen Bill swim fast, but I've never seen him run fast. <laughs> well, I won't comment on that because uh, my own uh, running <laughs> skills are, uh, frankly, never existed. It's not that the, uh, it's not that I'm just slower now than I used to be. I was never fast. So <laughs> <laughs> that's why you're a good old Ohio lineman. Didn't have yeah, to that's be right. fat. You're you're quick, not fast. Farm boy football, slow feet didn't really matter all that much. <laughs> no, no, Andrew, you, you've seen me swim, and it's not fast. <laughs> it's pretty fast. You're pretty good. You're pretty good. I get I get from one end to the other, but uh, uh, but given the pace and the interest of the Congress in moving forward on these issues, it's now time for the administration to figure out their China policy to the extent that they can influence and shape these and ensure that what winds up on the president's desk are the kinds of bills that that are generally supportive of where the administration wants to go uh, on foreign policy with China. Yeah, we didn't mention it, but Biden's infrastructure plans has a healthy chunk of this stuff too. And Scott's exactly right. You want something that's going to get through both houses and, and essentially both parties because of the narrow division and signed by the president. And, uh, you know, it's one of these things where everybody's for all this stuff in the most general sense. But when it comes down to actually writing provisions, then, you know, there's going to have to be some bargaining going on. How are U.S. businesses and investors responding to what's going on in Congress with this right now? I think typically with some hypocrisy, they're all for it, but they're not in favor of the tax increases that are going to be necessary to pay for it. I've represented business for a long time, and I have to say that it, there's a there's a kind of myopia in the business community, which is they're, they, they're happy to climb aboard new programs that help them. But when somebody suggests maybe the, we ought to pay for that somehow, that turns out to be a remarkably bad idea from the business community standpoint. In this case, there are two dimensions. Uh, one is the is how do you pay for it? So that's a that's a question for tax policy, where businesses will have varying interests. But also there's a there's a business China strategy element to this as well. 
At this point, many of the firms who are continuing to invest in China and develop the Chinese business are there to serve the Chinese consumer. And it's a very different model of globalization than, say, 25 years ago, where, where products were sourced from China to be sold in the United States. In this case, it is firms trying to, you know, sort of sell to Chinese customers or consumers, whether it's the services or, uh, for instance, Walmart operates retail stores in China. There's plenty of the former, too. China is still part of a lot of companies' business model. A lot of global supply chains, yes. I think you're going to see uh, that changing. For uh, We talked about this before and, and probably will several more times. It'll change because companies are going to find themselves under pressure from their customers to adjust their supply chains. Between the consumer-facing industries that are finding it increasingly difficult to, to deal with China's repressive tactics on forced labor and sort of anti-democracy. But also, I think businesses are acutely aware of China's tendency to, to weaponize trade. I mean, if you see what they did with the Australians, what they did earlier to the Norwegians who you know gave the Nobel Peace Prize to a Chinese dissident, and the Chinese, uh, among other things, as I, as I recall, cut off salmon imports. I mean, th- this, kind of, this is the kind of tactic that makes companies very nervous. They could be next. You know, and, and, and Chinese, uh, the Chinese increasing habit of sort of arresting foreigners on trumped up charges. I mean, look at what the Canadians are going through with what's called the, the two Michaels problem. I mean, two Canadian, innocent Canadians in doing business in China who've been in jail now for what, more than a year, simply because the Chinese arrested the, uh, the Huawei executive at the request of the United States. I mean, if you're going to play that game with trade, Businesses are going to be very nervous about going to China and about staying there. Well, speaking of weaponizing trade, we had a weaponization from kind of an unlikely source. On Monday, Harley-Davidson USA said that the EU had notified the company that it was revoking an agreement that allowed the business to supply Europe with certain motorcycles produced at its international manufacturing facilities at tariff rates of 6%. Harley said that the EU ruling would apply to its entire lineup and subject all products to a 56% import tariff within the trade block beginning June 1st. Now, talk about fighting words, man. I mean, that is really coming at us at our very Americanness. There isn't a product more American than Harley Davidson, right? Levi's, Harley's, and uh, maybe Jack Daniels. (laughs) There you go. And Marlboro cigarettes, if anybody smokes them anymore. Yeah. Those are generally at the top of any list for uh, sanctions uh, or, or retaliation trade. Actually, this this particular incident began with the uh, the Section 232, the national security tariffs on uh, steel and aluminum that the Trump administration put on uh, European exports of steel and aluminum. So this was a, it's a sort of an old retaliation. And Harley got caught in a squeeze here because many of their products are made in the United States and products made in the U.S. would be directly subject to European retaliation for the 232 tariffs that we put on. In this case, because Harley has diversified its manufacturing base, partly to sell in places like uh, Southeast Asia, they have a facility there and they they got a, a ruling from, I believe it was Belgian Customs, that uh, that they could import these motorcycles from Thailand to sell in Europe, and they would not be affected the same as motorcycles originating from the United States, which were part of the initial retaliation. And I guess that lasted until they were selling too many Harleys or something, and so the European Union overrode the binding decision from uh, Belgian Customs. Now, this happens... Outside the EU, it happens to Americans. 
one of the things you can do with with our custom service is seek binding rulings on uh, on tariff classification, and many companies do. I do remember a case uh, back in the midst of time called on stuffed molasses. There was a Canadian firm who figured out how to change the molecular structure of sugar to be able to avoid the import restrictions, bring it into the United States, and then use it in sugar-containing products. And it had a great market, and they got the Customs Service to give them a binding rule, and everything was fine until Senator John Burrow found out about it. And uh, the senator from Louisiana wasn't particularly happy, and the Customs ruling came unwound. So, uh, Yeah, a lot of cane fields in Louisiana. Yeah, these these things uh, these things do have a political dimension that appears to be at least what caused the additional headache for Harley here. You know, from a from a trade law point of view, I, as much as I'm I'm a fan of Harley, one of one of the first big trade issues I worked on with Senator Hines was the first Harley Davidson uh, import relief case, the safeguard case in the early Reagan administration. Because Harley has a plant in uh, Pennsylvania and York. But I have some sympathy for the European position here because this is a case of circumvention and it's a problem that's plagued us in trade law too, you know, which is when we impose tariffs for products that have been dumped or subsidized, sort of an unfair trade thing. One of the responses of countries is to get around that by doing what Harley did, which is to, you know, send your production somewhere else and forces us to produce a new case, a new complaint, which buys them a couple of years and, you know, things keep on moving. The EU's view is that's what happened here, that they slapped retaliatory tariffs on a bunch of U.S. products because of our steel 232 tariffs. Motorcycles was one of them. The Harley response, which was very public at the time, I mean, they made a big deal of this, was that, well, we'll shift our production uh, from the United States to Thailand, where they already had a plant. It wasn't like they went out and started one. At the time, I think the people that opposed the U.S. tariffs said, see, this is what happens. You know, when you mess with the market, it comes back and bites you. And, you know, a bunch of innocent U.S. producers are going to have to change their business models. And guess what? Americans are going to lose jobs because of the steel tariffs that were designed to help other Americans keep their jobs. So from the EU's point of view, they're closing a loophole. It's more complicated than that, first of all, because they got a binding ruling. It wasn't just an advisory opinion. And companies should be able to count on that. So I think the company has a has a point in litigation. The other issue, too, is it, it's not like Harley went off to a new country and started something from scratch just to get around this. The plant was already there. The plant was already producing motorcycles for the Southeast Asian market. And what Harley did is ramp up production for another market. But it was basically an existing facility. Uh, it's not exactly circumvention in the classical sense. But it also shows you what comes up all the time. When you mess with the market, there's downstream collateral damage. And uh, I'm, I'm sure the EU is, is chuckling about this because, you know, it's an iconic American product, exactly what, what you said, Andrew. And it's a way for them to demonstrate how unhappy they are with our steel tariffs, which from their point of view is what caused the whole thing in the first place. But isn't this a bigger problem in the sense that this is just the latest strain of the transatlantic relationship and they're you know, putting a serious strain on it. What are we supposed to do here now? Yes. I mean, the reason it's going to be 56 is because this is as of June 1st, because the EU announced some time ago that as long as our tariffs remained in effect, their retaliation had clearly not made them go away. They were going to double the retaliation 
as of June 1st. So the 25% tariffs that they put on uh, across the board were going to go up to 50 on June 1st. And since there was an existing tariff of six, that's how you get to 56 for motorcycles. And it's, you know, it, it, it's an escalation. I mean, it's really upping the ante and trying to push the United States to get rid of the tariffs, which if you listen to Secretary Raimondo recently, uh, doesn't sound like they're going to do. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out when the tariff starts to bite. Because Harley's not going to be the only victim. And, and 50% really knocks you out of the market. Scott, do you think we see supply chain shifts from Europe to Thailand? Well, look, this was a supply chain shift. Okay, uh, now it's it's probably probably there are some domestic interests in the EU, like Ducati and BMW, who are happy about this because all of a sudden a large displacement motorcycle that was their competitor is no longer price competitive. So there's some happiness about that. But look, our previous president was fond of saying, "I like trade wars; they're easy to win." In fact, the reason that that the United States spent about 50 years trying to get the world to stop trade wars is because they are they're very hard to prevent from escalating once they get started. I'm a big fan of negative feedback cycles, but biologists by training and feedback cycles in nature that team that tamp down things that flare up are good. They stabilize the system. But this is a positive feedback cycle we're in. Sort of like when you put the microphone too close to the amplifier, okay, and the system tears itself apart if you let that go. So we're in that mode right at the moment where trade wars aren't that easy to win and uh, they aren't that much fun when you when you see this kind of escalation. But it's the natural thing and it, it, it's what happened before the, the rules-based system that the U.S. helped put in place. Well, Bill always says, you know, once you flip the switch, it's not so easy to flip it back. And this, all of this is not going to be easy to untangle. Yep. It's also interesting that it's going on at the same time we're trying very hard to solve the Boeing Airbus issue, which right. has also been the subject of, of uh, retaliatory tariffs on both sides. And uh, I'm not up on whether there's any late news there, but, you know, both sides have made some concessions on that and have, uh, you know, postponed some of their actions in an effort to solve it. Now, at the same time here, the, uh, the EU is really raising the temperature on this, this other matter. Maybe we ought to get the parties together over some Jack Daniels and Marlboros and see if we can make some peace. <laughs> I mean, that, that is, uh, that's a series of bad decisions there, <laughs> right, in one meeting. So, Well, pre President Biden's trying to get um, the cigarette companies to eliminate nicotine. So, you know, hopefully that'll happen by the time this happens. And it'll be a nicotineless cigarette, which I guess, you know, is a healthier cigarette, right? If there's such a thing as a healthy cigarette. Let's talk about USTR staffing updates. President Biden has named Evercore, ISI policy analyst Sarah Bianchi, and Senate aide Jamie White as deputies in the office of the U.S. Trade Representative. And there's been some other appointments. What's going on there? You know, I have a very simple rule about this. If it's somebody I know, it's a good appointment. I know Jamie, and the other one that you didn't mention is, is Beth Balson, who's become a senior advisor to Ambassador Tai. We know Beth at CSIS. She's participated in, in some of our work, and we have a, a longstanding CSIS project, which is sort of in stasis right now to try to develop a, a new uh, trade promotion authority bill because it's going to expire in a couple of months. And uh, she was one of the participants in that. And I, I think it's been one of the thought leaders in the aggressive community towards creating a, you know, a new kind of trade policy, the kind of trade policy that Ambassador Ty talks about. So 
she adds an ideological edge, if you will, to the uh, structure that they've got there. Um, I've known Jamie a long time. I think I've always, since, since I did it, anybody that comes from the Hill is, is uh, going to be a brilliant addition. I think he's going to do a great job. I don't know Sarah uh, at all. Scott, do you? I don't. Apparently, she was uh, Senator Biden's staff back in his days as a senator from Delaware. But I don't I don't know her. I'm, I presume uh, she'll she'll do an able job. I just want to point out that uh, USTR is an unusual agency in that it has three deputies. Even large cabinet offices like like the Department of Defense have a single deputy. State Department has a single deputy, but uh, USDR has three. The one that's yet not to be named or waiting to be named is our deputy uh, that lives in Geneva and is, is uh, essentially our chief negotiator at the uh, at the WTO. So uh, there's still some jobs to be filled, but uh, but look, Jamie makes loads of sense uh, given that Ambassador Tai herself is a denizen of Capitol Hill and uh, probably worked very closely with with Jamie when he was Ron Wyden's. Uh, chief trade counsel, uh, and when she was on Ways and Means, so that that's probably a good working relationship for Ambassador Tai, and one that totally makes sense given the narrowly divided Senate and the importance of Congress to the trade policy. So in both cases, uh, look, I think this they're staffing it up the way I would have expected them to, and uh, these are good people. Do they get confirmed? I think Jamie probably will be. Uh, he's, he's up there. My personal experience, but also my observation is that. Uh, the Hill looks kindly on its own, uh, you know, and if, if you if you are moving from the legislative branch to the executive branch, people can tend to kind of smile about that. You know, one of our guys made good. So I don't think he'll have any problem. And he's got a you know, he really works for Ron Wyden and that's the committee that's going to have the hearing. So right. I, I think the path will be fairly quick. There's been some early signs that Sarah Bianchi might have some problems. It looks like uh, her portfolio is going to be Asia, uh, which means China. I mean, that's not the only portfolio, but that's uh, that's the biggest piece. Uh, and uh, sh- there are some on the right criticizing her for not having very much China experience. Um, I-, I think what we're seeing actually with some other uh, positions as well as yet unfilled is that the, you know, the, the China hawks, if you will, which are in both parties, are trying to uh, ensure that, you know, everybody that comes into the government uh, that has anything to do with China hates China. Uh, and there's kind of a litmus test here. If you've, if you've been in a different position, you know, if you've represented clients that do business there, if you're a lawyer, or if you've been in a trade association that, you know, represents companies that do business there, that means you're soft, uh, regardless of your personal views. Uh, or if you haven't done anything with China, that means you're ignorant. And what they want are committed anti-China ideologues. And uh, I don't think that's what's going to happen. But there's an early sign here that there may be some uh, some fussing about uh, about her nomination. I don't think it will. I, I don't think it will amount to much. But it it will be less smooth, I think, than Jamie's. I'll tell you a, uh, uh, an old story that um, tells you what what they're kind of up against. This was during the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration. I went in to meet with. Uh, and NSC, uh, uh, one of the office directors there on, I don't know what is, what the issue was, but, and we had sort of known each other because uh, he had been on the Hill, I'd been on the Hill, uh, although we didn't really overlap very much. Uh, and we were talking about it, it was not China related, but at one point he turns to me and says, you know, there are millions of Chinese who wake up every morning thinking about how to kill Americans. 
And my response was, well, you know, there's people in the Pentagon that wake up every morning thinking about how to kill Chinese. That's their job. You know, he doesn't miss a step. He looks at me and says, not nearly enough. Oh, boy. <laughs> now that's a hawk. <laughs> you know, what I've observed over the years is that every administration, well, permanently, not just in the executive branch, anybody's executive branch, in the legislature, in academia, and in the media, there are a chunk of people that believe that China is an existential threat. And my experience with China is there's a bunch of people in China who believe exactly the same thing about the United States. Uh, and I've long thought that, you know, the best policy we can pursue is to make sure that those people never end up in charge. Yeah. Good idea. Good plan. We came perilously close to them being in charge uh, in the last administration. And I think the same people are doing the best they can to make sure they're in charge in this administration. Maybe there's a there's a location halfway in between somewhere in the middle of the Pacific. We call it Navarro Island. And we put them all there and <laughs> let them govern. Just a thought. <laughs> As Andrew said in the beginning and Scott said in the beginning, they've got public opinion on their side now. Yeah, they do. The danger of, of on both sides of underestimating the other party is really great. I mean, this gets a little bit off trade into military, but there's a real danger of, of underestimating the other side's resolve on both sides. And I'm very worried about that. Well, it's something we got to keep talking about for sure, because, you know, it is, as we said, politically popular to bash China and to show that you're tough on China. And both parties are, you know, trying to flex their muscles to show that they're ready to take on China. So we'll maybe we'll have to create that island out in the middle of the Pacific, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> the, I think it's called Guam. And it is pretty close to Guam, at least. It's in the same in the same time zone, if not zip code. So and there's gotta be like some floating island of garbage out in the Pacific that they can inhabit, right? All these people. <laughs> now you're getting with it. <laughs> All those plastic bottles that have coalesced <laughs> yeah. and coagulated. Yeah, have them, have them host the climate change talks. There you go. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right, guys. This has been fun as always. Uh, we will be back next week. Same trade time, same trade channel to talk about more of all of the stuff that really matters when it comes to trade. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. To our listeners... If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.